Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Right now in Fast, Apple on the move. Shares up about a percent after posting better than expected revenue and earnings. The company also upping its dividend and announcing a $90 billion share buyback. Plus, banking blues. The regional is getting hammered again as TD's deal with First Horizon falls apart. PacWest and Western Alliance also on the defensive. What can be done to stabilize this battered sector? And later, the AI boom. Microsoft now said to be working with chipmaker AMD on a new specialized processor to help it compete with cloud rivals Amazon and Alphabet. AMD shares are surging. Plus, a major buzzkill for Paramount erasing all their games for the year as streaming costs rise and dividends get slashed. The media ripple effect straight ahead. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live at the Nasdaq market site on the desk tonight. Jeff Mills, Dan Nathan, Tim Seymour, and Julie Beal. As we mentioned, regional banks getting wrecked again. Names like PacWest, Western Alliance, First Horizon, all seeing another day of steep double-digit declines. We'll get to that in just a minute, but we start off with an earnings alert on shares of Apple. Uh, They're moving around in the after-hour session right now up by 1.5% as iPhone sales help drive a better-than-expected quarter. CNBC's Steve Kovacs got the number. Steve. Yeah, Mel, so better than feared. I think that's the headline here. Let's do a deep dive, though, into the segments of Apple and show where the pockets of strength and weakness are. iPhone, very strong, much stronger than feared. Uh, revenues coming in at $51.33 billion, showing growth up a percent and a half from the year-ago quarter. That was uh, one that everyone is watching. But as feared, Mac sales way down from the year-ago quarter. This is something Apple had already warned everyone about, kind of baked in. $7.17 billion in sales there. That's down 31%. iPad revenues were down 13% to $6.67 billion. Other products, that includes stuff like wearables, Apple Watch, AirPods, and things of that nature. That was down slightly year-on-year to $8.76 billion. And then services revenue showing pretty healthy growth there, up 5.5% to $20.91 billion dollars and as you said there's that announcement of the 90 billion dollar buyback and an increase of the dividend four percent to 24 cents and i did uh, talk to tim cook about these results and i asked him about cost cuts and layoffs again because as we see so many companies talk about efficiency and cost cuts here's what he told me about mass layoffs at apple quote i view that as a last resort and so mass layoffs is not something that we're talking about at this point So still cutting costs, but no mass layoffs is the headline there. And then on iPhone sales, showing that strength, I asked him what was behind that. Here's what he told me, quote, well, it accelerated from the December quarter and it accelerated partly because of China reopening. Part of it is also because of the recapture of some of the loss in Q1 from the factory issue. He's speaking, of course, Mel, about the shutdowns in China that caused him to miss some sales in the December quarter. Now, the call is just getting started. We're expecting Um, Some hint of guidance. They don't give formal guidance anymore during the pandemic. But any kind of hint at what sales are going to look like in the current quarter, that's what we're waiting for. I'll be back with more, Mel. Yep, a lot happens on that conference call. Steve, thanks. Steve Kovac. Um, We've seen Apple shares move around a lot in the after-hour session in anticipation of that conference call. Dan, 
Uh, what do you make of this quarter? Better than feared, yes. It's still the second straight quarter of declines in revenues. Yeah, so I think it's interesting, and Steve mentioned this, okay, so if that iPhone number, which was much better than expected, okay, but why is the services? Why was it down? I mean, so you would think that the services should be commensurate with that growth in the iPhone number. So if you tell me that they did better in China because of the, the zero COVID ending and some of the factory issues they had there, so they had this pull forward, that actually doesn't bode well for the current quarter, I don't think, as far as services, 5% year-over-year growth, not particularly great to me either. So I would expect China to be a focus on the call, and I don't expect them to have a whole heck of a lot of visibility. We've been hearing this again and again about this China <laughs> reopening, is that they bought all the Macs, they bought all the iPhones, they streamed all the stuff, they did everything. Now they want to go out and they want to travel. They want to go out to restaurants. They want to go to movies. They want to do all the stuff that we have been doing over the last year or so. So to me, I don't think this is particularly great. And I said it last night, I think it's kind of a one-up, two or three down sort of scenario. If there's any hints of any weakness in the current quarter, I think this stock probably does come back in in the not-so-distant future. Yeah, and think about this for a second. Where is the growth going to come from? I think some of the stuff that might get investors excited, India, AI, these are longer tail sort of situations that investors are focused on. And right now you have the biggest P.E. premium to the S&P 500 for Apple that you've seen since the financial crisis. So they're going to have to show investors something to eventually justify that premium. Now, I think the bull case for Apple might just be the flight to safety trade that we've seen. You know, relatively speaking, from a revenue perspective and an earnings perspective, they may be able to hold up as we continue to move into this slowdown. But to Dan's point, iPhone, if that was China, if that was some makeup from some supply chain issues, you know, that may start to wane as we move through the next couple of quarters. I think we're starting to see cracks in the labor market. So my guess is growth is continuing to slow as we move through the rest of the year. And this multiple becomes problematic. Yeah, those are one-offs in terms of growth in the quarter. Exactly. Really, that won't be repeated in the current quarter. Um, what did you make of this, Julian? Do you agree that, I mean, should an Apple have, have a premium attached it's the bank of Cupertino. I mean, in, in a market where everything seems to be falling apart, there are a lot of doubts about the recession, there's banking crisis, et cetera, et cetera. Don't you want to be in safety and won't you pay up for it? Yeah, I mean, banks is a four-letter word, so I probably wouldn't attach that to them right now. <laughs> but I agree with you. I, I think that people are, there is, we've seen a notable flight to quality and safety. And if you look at this company's margins through the last global financial crisis, they actually expanded. Um, and they're at a, a pretty high level. So to me, the mix is what's really important and understanding how they're able to expand their services portfolio. The iPhone is always going to be the freeway on-ramp to services. And if you think of a brand that has more trust, it's it's Apple, right? It's Apple for financials. It's Apple for healthcare. I mean, I would really like it if there were a service where it would tell me I hadn't taken my ADHD medicine and it would just order an AirPod for me because I'm going to lose them that day for sure. That's what I would like from Apple. That would be useful AI. <laughs> um, Tim, what did you make of the quarter here? And I mean, especially given the backdrop of Qualcomm last night, people were on edge. We saw Apple trade lower in the after hours in the back of Qualcomm. We saw it under pressure all day today. And the question is, where are we going to hear uh, that Qualcomm warning that was implied against Apple? And maybe it's in the quarter to, to come. I, you know, the services growth of five and a half percent year over year is, is not the growth we saw when the stock re-rated on a services multiple. Um, but on an installed base of 975 million, which Tim Cook just announced, which is up 150 million year over year. I mean, you know, this is this is why the stock gets what it gets. When you've got a services business that's now uh, annualized at around 85 billion dollars, it explains where we are. I, I do think the Bank of Cupertino is underappreciated by investors, at least in terms of the impact it has on the stock, the shrinking share count, the EPS that continues to get goosed higher. So um, I, look, I've said like, uh, you know, 
certainly some of the, the, the folks that believe Apple's best days relative to the market are behind it. I believe that. I, I look at, at a, a ratio of the uh, S Apple to the S&P, and I see it running into that resistance around 0.41 if you do that ratio of Apple to the spies. That's where you get, and I think that's the problem. Um, I do agree. Jeff mentioned the defensiveness. There's no question. We had this chat last night. Uh, I think it will be. There's everything in these numbers that allow Apple to continue to be defensive. I, I just don't think you have to. I don't think the stock gets away from you here, and, and that's why I think you can own it lower. You know, it's interesting. So a month from now, they're going to have their worldwide developers forum. So when you talk about the things that, that can really get leverage off of that, you know, two billion plus installed base, it's things like you just mentioned. It's healthcare. It's finance. It's also this augmented reality VR headset that is hotly anticipated. It's going to be at a high price point. But I think a lot of investors like to see what is going to be the innovation over the next couple of years in, in a new buzzy sort of thing. And they have the potential to do that. There's not going to be anything in auto right now. But like some of those sorts of things like again i think we're all saying this is like the stock is you know what a few percent from its all-time highs here is trading at a multiple to just point versus the s p that doesn't make a lot of sense in this rate environment so if this stock were to come in it's really 35 percent off its january lows then you can get excited about a product roadmap all right we're going to get a lot more on apple a little bit later on in the hour but let's now turn to the other big story of the day and that's the regional bank wreck take a look at some of the steep losses in names like PacWest, first horizon western alliance and others the kre regional bank etf is down another 5% today, touching its lowest levels in September 2020. Leslie Picker joins us now with the very latest headlines driving some of these stocks lower. Leslie. Hey, Mel, a lot to unpack in the regional banking space today. PacWest lost half of its already depressed market cap today after reiterating from our reporting last night that it has hired advisors to explore strategic options including a potential sale. Western Alliance also sharply lower after saying the opposite, that it's not for sale, it hasn't hired advisors, and an FT report suggesting otherwise is false. First Horizon also very much in the red after the bank announced this morning that their $13 billion merger agreement with TD Bank was terminated over a lack of regulatory timeline for approval. First Horizon CEO Brian Jordan telling CNBC that Washington needs to act to quelch the crisis of confidence that's embroiling many of these regional bank names. There's a tremendous amount of uncertainty about the banking system in total, and, and people are trying to figure out what does this mean at an institutional level. I think it's a, a real opportunity to, to articulate a long-term deposit insurance strategy. Congress will have to act on that and bring certainty back. So just the latest bit of evidence that the chorus is growing ever louder about the need for Washington to potentially get more involved here, Mel. In the form of unlimited FDIC insurance, in the form of, of a ban on short selling of these stocks, I mean, all of the above. All. <laughs> all of the above, the potential for a capital infusion, uh, kind of akin to TARP like we saw in 2008, 2009. I think the key question is, are we at that point where things are bad enough that Washington really needs to take these drastic measures that many see kind of reserved for some severe financial crises? Are we at that point now? Or are they kind of waiting to see if that's necessary? Uh, you know, obviously bailout is is not a, you know, a, po a, a popular word in Washington these days. So it, it, there are political dynamics at play as well. Yeah. Well, Jay Powell says there's no problem, so I'm sure it's, everything's, fine. everything's fine. Leslie, thank you. Leslie Picker, um, let's get a trade on the regionals here. Perception right now is everything, Jeff. 
Perception is reality, and there's a negative feedback loop going on right now. Whether it's short selling or the market just selling all of these names at once, it doesn't really matter. But you start to see these names crash, and depositors get nervous, and they pull money out, and then it starts to become a real issue. I think the good news is that this is not 2008. It's not a credit issue. You know, the securities on these banks' balance sheets, they're going to mature at par. They're not difficult to value. I think we've said this time and time again, but in my view, of, of course, there's idiosyncratic risk. We've seen it. We probably haven't seen the last of it, but it really is lending standards and what that means for the acceleration in the economy. When we were already slowing down, now small businesses, consumers, they're going to have a more difficult time getting credit. Uh, and for me, that only exacerbates the slowdown that I've been talking about for months and months. Yep. Our next guest warns the regional bank chaos is destroying credit creation and fears it will have painful consequences for the economy. Stuart Sopp is the CEO of fintech company Current. Stuart, good to see you again. Um, Mark Zandi of Moody's has said that uh, the coming credit tightening is like three uh, hikes. Howard Lutnick this morning on Squawk Box says it's 100 basis points. Well, how do you see the impact playing out? Yeah, I think right now from, from a consumer standpoint, like um, the Fed uh, interest rate policy has a lag of about 12 months. And so if, uh, consumer credit is now starting to hit. I think when you look at the specific names that we're seeing now, the regional banks that, um, that are starting to sell off today, like uh, PacWest, um, we're seeing something like 50% off, 50 uh, to 60% off. Um, this is a different problem than we saw from uh, Silicon Valley Bank. Um, this is short sellers coming in, they're driving deposits away, and that's a very different dynamic. It's a different, also a different bank dynamic because these are regional banks that are focused on um, local lending uh, and uh, local businesses, which is very different from Silicon Valley, which was mainly centered around tech. And I would say people who have money over the $250,000 FDIC deposit level. What have you seen? Uh, we've heard from many banks that the flight of deposits out has stabilized. Did you benefit from some of that flight out? And what are you seeing right now? Yes, uh, a little bit. I think fintech in general has a payments model, which is slightly different to the long duration um, uh, model that we're seeing right now. Uh, it's like 2008. If, you, if I, you know, I was a Wall Street trader for 16 years. Um, and when I put on that cap, I, I, you know, I get PTSD a little bit from, from what's happening right now. Uh, but that was a credit problem. Uh, and so we're not seeing the same kind of credit problems. Banks are uh, in a much better state than they were ever before. Um, but what we're seeing right now is a duration bubble. It's the everything bubble. And this bubble is bursting right now. And I think there is contagion, not within the banking sector, but across sectors. Auto loans, credit cards, real estate. This is something that's happening right now. And I think that's why the regulators are really struggling to get a hold of this. Stuart, when you started Current, I mean, you really wanted to take on some of the incumbents, right? You wanted to serve um, a, a consumer that you didn't think was being served well by these massive money center banks. When you look at what's going on right now, it just seems like they are the beneficiaries of everything that's going on with the regionals. What does that mean? We spent a lot of time talking about fintech, or we have over the last few years. What does it mean to someone like you who has been building and you've been kind of trying to go after these sorts of guys, but it seems like they're going to come out of this much stronger? Yeah, I, I think it's down to the demographic that you serve. And so in fintech, in neobanks, we're, we're focused on blue-collar workers, people who are living paycheck to paycheck, the, the, the normal American, right? I wouldn't say average, normal American uh, person. When you're talking about Chase and, uh, and these big money center banks, they're trying to bank everyone, which it means that it's, it doesn't really fit for everyone. Um, regional banks are obviously more specialized, more niche in terms of how they lend. I think there's a big gap that's being built through their business model that is, that is coming about that the big money center banks won't be able to fill. And I think it's our time, it's Neobank's time through a payment model, primarily a different business model, to really um, uh, fulfill that need. And you're starting to see that even with the earnings today with Block and Coinbase and such. I mean, 
if you compare that to the Q1 of, of what's happening with, with regionals, you're starting to see a differentiation in financial services. Um, put your trader cap on, because yep. you mentioned 16 years. You also got the, the financial services sort of credentials here. So meld them together. How do you see this ending? I mean, do you think that um, FRC going to receivership and JP Morgan picking up the assets with the help from the FDIC, is that the playbook here? Or are banks just waiting on the bigger banks, waiting on the sidelines for these you know, under duress regional banks to, to find the same fate for them to pick up the bones out of receivership? Yeah, you saw TD pull back today on First Horizon. I think that was a smart move by them. Um, they really have the pick of the bunch. If you're, if you're in the market to pick up a regional bank, you really do. Uh, you should wait. I think there's a structural problem, the moral hazard that we've all talked about uh, through the FDIC and, and maybe the administration really waiting for receivership. There is no auctions happening. Even the JP Morgan deal with, with FRC, it, there was no auction. And, and so it was really a forced marriage and, and there was a good deal for JP Morgan. Yeah. So if you're in the market for a regional, the regulators are telling you and the, and the administration is telling you, wait, we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll sort this out. So there's no impetus. We'll share the losses. We'll lend you money. Yeah. And we'll raise deposit caps for you. That's right. All yeah. right. Uh, Stuart, great to see you. Thank you. Thank you. Stuart Sop. Tim, what do you think? I think that regional banks are just a very different investment because they're not going to be giving back capital. They're in capital accretion mode. They're not there. There'll be no buybacks. And I think they they become a different investment. Uh, and, and I think that's part of it. The other part is the unknown regulatory environment. And I think I don't think anyone's saying this. Don't worry about credit. But let's be careful not to say that this isn't a credit moment. And, and SVB was a credit moment. Let's be clear. I mean, and, and to say that securities, even if they're uh, government and agency securities, if you're levered or if you're extended on some level, that is a credit dynamic. So uh, I, I think part of the problem here is we still have to wait and see where some of the, 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 the follow through from 500 basis points of the Fed and some of the consumer regional credit issues and, and frankly, some of the institutional issues, I think, are, are yet to play out. That's why people are scared. I, I think the FDIC, you know, it doesn't have to be a permanent solution. But yes, I, I think a two-year blanket, some type of insurance is what the banking system needs. And everybody said it. It's, it's terrible for the economy. And, and at this point, it's too late. You're, you're going to already see that contraction. Coming up, we've got much more after hours action after the break. Shares of Coinbase and Lyft moving in very different directions after the bell. The details from the quarters next. Plus, Chip Finance, shares of AMD surging on reports Microsoft is footing the bill for a move into the AI space. The details on that one when Fast Money returns. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close? or travel somewhere far away. At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.
Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a pair of earnings alerts starting with Lyft. Shares plummeting despite a top line beat. The company slash guidance for the current quarter, roughly having its bottom line outlook. Deirdre Bose has got the details. Debo. Melissa, you know, new CEO David Risher, he's only about three weeks into the job, but on his first analyst earnings call, he addressed the elephant in the room and he said, I'm very aware of our current levels of growth and profitability. They're not acceptable. I also know that investors are waiting for long-term updated long-term targets, but he says that he's still new and he wants to be confident that he can deliver when he gives those longer term targets. And certainly investors are struggling to figure out if he can deliver also. Stock is below $10 in the after hours. I also spoke to him, the new CEO, David Risher, today, and it is clear that he's going to be prioritizing growth over profitability. He told me that the cost savings from the big round of layoffs he did as his first move as CEO are going right back into the business to riders and drivers. So essentially, they're going to be spending a lot more to win back some of that market share from Uber that it's lost over the last few years. The analyst call, though, it was still focused on those unit economics and how Lyft can differentiate itself from Uber. On that front, Risher, he was very light on specifics. He talked a lot about the brand and serving drivers. But Mel, I've covered this space for a long time. I know that riders, they just want the best price and drivers, they want to get paid. And that comes down to money, capital, and that is going to hit that profitability, at least for the foreseeable future. Back to you. Yeah. Deidre, thanks. Deidre Bosa. Julie, that's not the kind of stock people in general want to be in this kind of rising rate environment uh, to sacrifice margins in order to gain share because you're in growth mode. Yeah, it's like, am I in 2021 all over again? I, I think the Lyft has a lot of problems, right? The fact that they are having to plow money back into both the drivers and rider incentives tells you that the strength of their network is very, very weak. And this business model is entirely dependent on the strength of their network. And so until they're able to really restore that, there's no interest on either side. And I think, you know, trying to just chase after that business with zero profitability, it's not going to help the stock either. That's for sure. Uber shares not moving in the after hour session. I, I heard those words from Debo and, and I thought price war immediately, Tim, and I got worried about both of them. No, this is, uh, you know, this isn't macro issues that we're confronting rideshare during COVID and even coming out of COVID and, and things related to drivers and even regs. Um, this is a, a Lyft specific story. And, and, and to the extent that look, Q1, they, they saw a ride share grow for the first time in a couple of years in that quarter. Um, that's good news. Are, are they still losing market share? That's the real question. And right now it appears as if they are. I, I think the, the, the story ultimately is going to be about profitability. And, and it's, it's with some irony that they were really the first ones ahead of Uber that were talking about uh, where they were going to be both on, on, on adjusted. And now that U.S. Gap comes into play, um, it seems like it's missing. I think this guide is very conservative. He made it clear he was going to be conservative because he wants to beat. Um, so I think I think this is an overreaction. Again, this was the L in the LAGS acronym that I chose. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm going to stand by this one. Yeah, it was in yours too, right? My TLSQ. Yeah. And I'll tell you why. Oh it wasn't, it, listen, I think a solid number two <laughs> in, smug, in, any, <laughs> in any innovative space <laughs> makes a lot of sense. But I also see this thing with a $3 billion enterprise value. I see it with the new management. I see it with like what Tim just said. I think they just lowered the bar so they can meet the next couple quarters. I think you could probably, but look at that picture right there. I think you could, um, it's like 15 years I think you could probably buy the stock here. <laughs> and, you know, the stock is down, what, 10% of the year or something like that. It's not, you know, it's not a disaster yet. Let's give this guy a little bit of honeymoon period. There's a lot of year left, Jeff Mills. There is. There is. is willing to put Dan's acronym and, and Tim's acronym down when you are in the leading spot right now. I have to enjoy it while it lasts, to... right? Then what's, what's the point credit. if I'm not? 
Um, but to your point, if you look at the charts of Uber and Lyft, Lyft obviously being at the low end, there might be some upside here. But they said the exact opposite thing that you want to say in this market. And the stock is going to have a knee-jerk reaction the other way. Other companies have talked about efficiency and cost-cutting, and you're getting the complete opposite reaction. For me, it's a pricing pressure issue. I think driver supply is pressuring surge pricing. They've had to cut pricing just to compete in the market in general. So how are they going to justify the growth trajectory and the current multiple? That's going to weigh on the stock. All right, let's get to Coinbase now. Shares are popping in the after-hour session after posting a revenue beat and smaller-than-expected bottom-line loss. Christina Partsinevelis joins with the latest. Christina. Well, it, Q1 was a turning point for Coinbase. That's what the CFO just told me on a phone call uh, not too long ago. She said the company is operating more efficiently, saw strength across the board with revenue growing in every category. Much of the earnings beat came from two factors, cost-cutting and a jump in subscription service revenue, following, of course, the rally in crypto that we saw in Q1. Although the company will not be providing full-year guidance, given macro uncertainty, they did guide Q2 subscription service revenue, which is a huge source of revenue for them, a little light because they expect interest rates to stay more muted and they expect a drop in staking, aka you get rewards for holding certain crypto. They also expect an uptick in expenses because of legal costs. Recall that the SEC might sue them for securities fraud and higher marketing costs, but Coin CFO tells me that there should be no changes to headcount. Lastly, there was a note just coming out from Mizuho right now pointing out that Coin is still reliant on riskier revenue like alternative coins and staking, which could have uncertain futures given the SEC's Wells Notice. Christina, thanks. Christina Partsinevelis. Um, 23% short interest in this stock, Jeff. Yeah, this is sort of a cop-out, I guess, but I've said this before about other names. It's just not the right stock for this market, and I hate the chart. It rallied to 70, which has been a difficult level. It's back down below the 200-day. I think it's sort of interesting that the price of the stock has diverged from the price of Bitcoin itself. I don't necessarily know what that means, but I think it means something. I'm not sure whether it's good or bad, but again, I just think the fundamental profile of this company, as the market is going to continue to experience volatility, I think these high beta names, these unprofitable names with a chart that looks like this, uh, I, I think it's difficult. All right, I got one for you. Okay. Forget Coinbase, okay? The, uh, the regulatory stuff, all this stuff, everything that Jeff just said, I agree with all of yeah. it. Robinhood. Really? Robinhood. I'm going to tell you why. I never would have guessed. I'm going to tell you why, okay? This has a $3 billion enterprise value. They have $7.6 billion market cap. They have $6.2 billion in cash and only one and a half billion in debt. They are cutting their their gap losses. They're getting smaller here. And I just think that you are exposed to if crypto ever comes back and crypto feels pretty stupid right now. I mean, in general here in America, it does. It just doesn't seem like something. But if crypto comes back, the Robin Hood customer is going to be there for it. OK, in a meaningful way. And then you also have the potential for I think maybe they get taken out or something like that. So to me, if you are interested in, in, in Coinbase here, I'd go to Robin. All right. There's a lot more fast money to come. Here's what's coming up next. Chipping in. AMD getting a boost on reports of an AI alliance with Microsoft. What it means for the semi-sector. Plus, a waste of office space. New York City seeing a surge in vacancies. And the real estate crunch could just be getting started. The details ahead. You're watching Fast Money. Live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... 
Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Welcome back to Fast Money. AMD surging more than 6% on a report that Microsoft is helping to finance a chipmaker's push into AI processors. As part of the deal, AMD is reportedly developing Microsoft's AI chip under codename Athena to train and run AI systems, something that Microsoft's cloud competitors, Amazon and Alphabet, have already developed. NVIDIA currently the dominant player in AI chips, falling by nearly a percent today, while Intel jumped more than 2%. Clearly, the market sees this is more of a positive for AMD than for Microsoft, Tim. But is this a reason for you to be in AMD, seeing that it's got Microsoft's seal of approval? If we judge by NVIDIA's performance, it is, um, which probably took 27 or 8 percent you know, from, I, I think, the Microsoft news and really the, 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 the jump into AI. But um, I think the story on AMD, and we heard this uh, recently from their numbers, it, it's, it's a question of where they are seeing some trends that actually may get a little bit worse before they get better. Um, we're seeing inventory dynamics that are probably in a much better place, but we're not necessarily seeing some, some uh, you know, end demand in the way, especially in, in data centers. So uh, AMD's had a great run. It's not cheap. Um, this is an exciting frontier. And, and I don't know how the market's going to react because the market has surprised me on what it's done to AI on the ups and the downs, even to what it did to Google. Um, so, uh, you know, using NVIDIA as a judge, the stock's going higher. Uh, and you're short NVIDIA, Dan. Yeah, it's funny. You know, when this news came out, um, NVIDIA did sell off quickly one and a half percent. This is a stock that's up, you know, nearly 200 percent off its all time highs. It trades at 23 times sales. You know, we could make any valuation argument you want in favor of AMD. AMD right now, you know, Microsoft's about a three and a half percent customer. I think it's a good narrative. The stock was trading down yesterday off a disappointing um, report and guide to me. Just NVIDIA doesn't make any sense here. I, great company, great management, great products, all of the above, just at 23 times sales, 66 times earnings. And, you know, they're going to report on May 24th. I mean, listen, this thing is priced to perfection. Yeah, and I just don't know which direction the catch-up trade is. To your point, there's a big valuation gap between NVIDIA and AMD, NVIDIA being expensive. So does NVIDIA ultimately get pulled down or does AMD go higher? My guess is NVIDIA gets pulled down. I I think ultimately that's the trend. I don't know that this news really moves the needle fundamentally, so that's where I'd be pushing my chips to. By the way, we're getting some guidance from the Apple conference call right now. The stock is up 2% uh, at this moment. Apple expects fiscal third quarter year-on-year revenue growth to be similar to fiscal second quarter. They're also talking about gross margins, expecting gross margins to be between 44 and 44.5%. We'll give you some more context on the guide in, in just a minute, but that's what we have right now. Coming up, the city that never goes to work. Why Manhattan is facing an office space dilemma. Details on the troubling trend ahead. And, of course, uh, we'll have the latest on Apple again. That stock is up 2-plus percent. Um, We'll have the latest in the conference call coming up next. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Stocks putting in their fourth day of losses as regional bank concerns continue to weigh on investors. The Dow dropping nearly 300 points. The S&P down seven-tenths of a percent and the Nasdaq falling half a percent, all three on pace for their worst week since March. Some movers from today, shares of Novo Nordisk falling more than 4% after reporting results this morning. The drug maker cutting some supply of its Wigovi obesity drug as demand soars. Peloton also peddling lower, down more than 13% after reporting a wider-than-expected loss. The company forecasting its first-ever decline in subscribers. And some more after-hours movers, Carvana, DoorDash, and Block, all higher, while Booking Holdings is lower. 
Um, shares of Apple at after-hours session highs. The company giving guidance for gross margin, but saying FX could impact revenue in June. CEO Tim Cook just saying we view AI as huge, and we continue weaving it into our products on a very thoughtful basis. Fast Money friend Gene Munster of Deepwater Asset Management has been listening in. Um, Gene, what stands out to you? Um, Melissa, let's start with the guidance. They essentially guided for revenue to be down 2% in the June quarter. The street was looking for plus 2%. As you mentioned, there's a 4% FX impact there. Sometimes investors factor that in, sometimes they don't. It's a guide down any way you cut it, and which begs the question of why is the stock uh, hanging in there? Why is it continue to inch higher? And I think investors made up their mind going into this call that this is uh, generally a good quarter and specifically related to this installed base. And I've heard the, and Tim Cook mention it once, Luca mentioned it twice, it's come up in a couple of the questions. And they said that it grew year over year. It was $2 billion last quarter. It grew 8% last quarter. They didn't give the exact number, 8% in the June quarter. But I just want to highlight this. They said it grew. Their device revenue is down, call it 5%. And that usually is a good indication that the people are holding on to their devices, getting more devices, and separately, old devices that are getting refurbished are going to new Apple customers. And that is the substance of a sleep well at night uh, type of a, a business to own. This is why I believe that it should get a consumer staple multiple. So what's really stuck out, what is uh, here is, again, the install base number growing and I think evidence that this is actually happening. There is a shift in terms of how investors are thinking about the Apple investment thesis is they just guided down and the stock is hanging in there. Uh, it's funny you mentioned consumer um, staple multiple. I mean, P&G's got practically the same forward P.E. as Apple at this point, Gene. Um, on the conference call, what what do you want answered still? What haven't we heard about? Because what, what caught my ear uh, when Steve Kovac was outlining the results, particularly as it, as it pertains to China, was that China was driven by these one-off sort of pull forwards, which won't be repeated in the current quarter. The, the gain back from the factories reopening, the gains from um, China reopening in general, that's, that's not to be repeated, I would think. Exactly. That was the negative in the quarter is these are one-time benefits. But some of that negative, the reason why I didn't lead with that was that uh, the guidance essentially answered that question about how much of that how much of that pull forward. It probably was a percent or two pull forward into the and the iPhone re revenue growth. Uh, so iPhone would have been, probably been flat versus up a couple percent. So yes, that happened. But based on their guidance, it wasn't that big of an impact. So I think that that is a secondary topic. What's on my mind is India. They've it's come up in a couple of questions. They've definitely highlighted. Uh, we're going to hear a lot about India when it comes to Apple. Just get ready for it. It's they don't break it out, but it's just under three percent of total revenue. Mainland China, they don't break that out, but I estimate it's about twelve percent of revenue. Cook's laying the groundwork that India can be big or at bigger than China. So if all of your concerns, my concerns about China, at least on the demand side, uh, they're having a lot of success, double-digit growth in India. That's a big deal because when you're a $400 billion company, you got to find large markets to go after. Mm -hmm. And after a decade, they're finally making traction in India. But just to underscore the point, Gene, you see the revenue guide as a miss, down 2% year-on-year versus the estimate of up 2% year-on-year. Correct. There is a 4% FX headwind. You can debate whether that's in there. Similar growth rates. They, they were down 2.5% in the March quarter, because you mentioned Cook said on the call, or Lucas said on the call, similar growth rates for the, the uh, June quarter. That is down. The street was looking for up 1.5%. Uh, uh, and again, I think that that speaks to how the investor psyche of this uh, uh, investment thesis is shifting. Mm -hmm. 
Gene, thanks. Keep us posted on any developments. Gene Munster of Deepwater. Uh, Julie, what's your take on this latest? Yeah, no, I, I think that it's true that the Indian market is something that may be underappreciated. And I think Apple's really one of the first brands, luxury brands, I would say, to recognize that they have an opportunity there. And what's great is Apple is really starting to refine its ability to do customer segmentation in terms of pricing by offering more of these refurbished models. And as customers get more comfortable with that, that opens the aperture of opportunity set for them. And so I think they've really figured out how to approach this market in a way that makes sense. And I'm expecting big things from there going forward. Your take on the uh, revenue guide was the same as Gene's, Dan, when it first crossed. Yeah, I mean, the fact that we weren't expecting guidance um, and then we got it, so we got slightly better gross margins and slightly worse revenue, I mean, to me, that kind of leaves the door open, I think, for further disappointment here. I think that India and China, if they're going to remain a bit of a black box in a very uncertain, like, global economic sort of environment, I just don't, you know, again, I don't see North America making that um, back up here, so I just don't understand buying the stock here at 170. All right, up 2% right now. Coming up, the concrete jungle is looking pretty empty. Why New York City's office space vacancy is causing concern. More on the real estate rut next and throughout May. CNBC is celebrating Asian American and Pacific Islander heritage. Here's the CEO of Open Table. I'm proud to be Asian American because of my ability to straddle two different worlds. I grew up in a very much Chinese-Taiwanese household with very different cultural norms than when I was at school or with my friends. And I think that belonging to two different worlds has served me really well, both personally and professionally. I have depth of knowledge across different cultures and that richness um, and fabric that it provides in my life, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Do not miss a CNBC Pro Talk special event tomorrow, 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time, live from Omaha, ahead of Berkshire Hathaway's annual shareholder meeting. Go to cnbc.com slash protalks. Office vacancies in Manhattan hitting a record high as mounting layoffs and continued work from home prompts companies to leave their leases in the Big Apple behind. Robert Frank has the latest on the corporate real estate exodus. Robert. Listen, Manhattan uh, now has 94 million square feet of vacant office space. That is an all-time record and equal to 37 empty Empire State Buildings. Vacancy rate now up 75% since pre-COVID. The overall vacancy rate now at a record 17%. And there are really no signs that this is going to get better anytime soon. New leases were down 44% over the same month last year. And the office occupancy rate, so that's how many people are coming into the office? That has been stuck around 48% for the past year. Now, the REITs with concentrations in New York seeing big stock declines. Bornado trading at a 26-year low. CEO Stephen Ross saying the company is going to, quote, take a breath in its timeline for that big Penn Station development. SL Green, Empire State also down, trading at 52-week lows. Now, other urban markets also in trouble. San Francisco's vacancy rate hitting a record in their first quarter. Nearly a third of their office space is now unleashed. And Mel, as we've been talking about, this is another potential problem for these regional banks, which of course have most of the exposure to commercial real estate and a lot of it in office in these big urban cities. 
When you say 94 million square feet of vacant office space, and I guess I'm trying to, to look for the silver lining or a ray of sunshine, I mean, that actually means that they are not leased at all, that these are sitting empty and that they're not making any money. Is that correct? It's not just that they're, being, that they're not being used. That's right. This is unleased space, I mean, yeah. basically empty, and that doesn't include subleases where people have a lease. They've technically occupied the space, but they're trying to sublease it to someone else. So, you know, if you add in that, that's well over 100 million square feet of empty space. Wow. Robert, thank you. Robert Frank. Um, you got to wonder why anybody's in any of these REITs, Tim. Yeah. And Vornado has done some puzzling things recently. They've suspended their div. They talk about stock buybacks, um, which is strange when their you know, net debt to EBITDA is 14 times and they still have $850 million to spend on that, that you know, Penn Station thing. So I, yeah, it's, it's, again, a lot of people are in some of these, uh, some of these REITs for, for that dividend yield. Um, but again, suspending that to be buying back shares, I, I recognize they see the value. Um, I, I think I would be keeping cash for some of the debt and some of the, the obligations they have. All right. Uh, regional banks also feeling the pain from corporate real estate, the bust that's going on. Uh, the options market is betting that there could be more carnage ahead. Mike's got the action. Mike. Yeah, there were a lot of the regional banks that were seeing above average activity. We're focusing on Zion Bank Corp today, which traded four times its average daily options volume, five and a half times its average daily put volume. Puts outpaced calls by more than three to one. The busiest of those were the May 15 puts, which expire two weeks from tomorrow. We saw nearly 8,200 of those trading for $3.28 a contract. Now, bear in mind, the stock is about $20. So that's a 25% out of the money strike, which traded for about 20% of the strike. That's pretty extraordinary premium. Obviously, there are a lot of options traders out there who still see significant uncertainty in the space over the coming weeks. Mike, thanks. Mike Coe, for more options action, tune into the full show. That's tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, shares of DraftKings surging after its latest report. What the company said that got investors anteing up. That's coming up when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money and Earnings Alert on DraftKings. Shares soaring after beating on the top and the bottom lines. Let's get to Contessa Brewer for the details on the quarter. Contessa. Hi there, Melissa. Yeah, so 9% climb in after hours uh, trading here after they beat those estimates. And here's why. The sports betting operator is reporting a loss per share of 87 cents, slightly better than the 89 cent loss the street was anticipating. Revenues coming in far higher than what the consensus was. But the company also says that it raised its full year revenue guidance. It's reporting monthly unique payers up 39% first quarter of last year, and they're spending 35% more. So they come onto the platform, they're spending more, 92 bucks per monthly average user. The company says it's retaining them and it's doing it all more efficiently. But uh, 84%, Melissa, 84% revenue growth in the first quarter over last year. That's something for DraftKings to crow about. Yep. Contessa, thanks. Contessa Brewer, Jeff Mills.
So this is a stock, if we remember, I was in and out of during the pandemic. I actually hadn't looked at it in a while, and I looked at the chart and thought, it actually looks half decent. The 50-day is above the 200-day, trying to punch above that $20 level. So I was thinking perhaps a smaller loss than expected would be enough for the stock. It looks like maybe that is the case. The trouble for them has been customer acquisition costs. So I think if they can get that under control and convince the market that at least there's a path to profitability, the chart is telling you that maybe there's more room to the upside. Yeah, let's get to a buzzkill now. And Paramount shares plunging 28% for the stock's worst day on record. The company seeing declining revenue per streaming user and weakness in the linear TV business. Paramount also slashing its dividend for the first time since 2009 from 24 cents a share to 5 cents a share. On the other hand, Live Nation jumping after hours. The company seeing soaring demand as concert going remains a priority for fans. Julie, I was going to say would you rather, but which one do you want to trade? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I'd keep me away from Paramount for sure. There's nothing in that earnings report that looks good. I think it is an important uh, reset for all of the other streaming suppliers. There's a recognition that just, you know, the economics of that business aren't great. And, you know, we've been spending like drunken sailors for content. And there has to be some recognition towards that, that the the economics have to be better. So it's a concern for me. Does this make uh, Netflix look like the king here? Does this solidify Netflix's position, Tim? Well, they, they're not seeing, first of all, they've, they've proven that they, even in a slightly different format, that they still have some pricing power. They're not seeing that type of erosion. They are generating free cash flow. They are profitable. So very different story. And, and I think it's a case where, um, you know, the death of linear TV, we, we've already priced in, or um, I guess not, though, in Paramount's case. So, uh, of course, their linear TV is falling. Uh, that's not a surprise. All right. We're just getting some comments from Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, on the company's conference call talking about India, saying a lot of people are entering the middle class and they are hopeful to convince some of them to buy an iPhone. Right now, he says that is working out well. He also mentioned China. Uh, he says he, they're pleased with the reacceleration in China with the reopening. The stock is up 1.8 percent. We'll have anything else on the other side of this. Final trades up next. Take a look at shares of Apple. Pretty stable with a 2% gain. We also want to bring you comments from the CFO, Luca Maestri, saying that they are seeing the impact of the macroeconomic environment, particularly in advertising as well as mobile gaming. That conference call is ongoing, but we got to get to the final trades. Tim. Speaking of macro, uh, it looks great for gold here. GDX breaking out above 35. Julie Beal. I like Aspen. It's down quite significantly, so for long-term investors, could be interesting. Jeff Mills. So I'm capitulating a little bit here on energy. Dan, you were right. I was wrong. What? Never. It pains me to say, but I think ExxonMobil is the next chart to crack. Watch 105. It's going to be his ringer now. Dim, Dan? Yeah, Apple selling mango away. There you go, guy down there. All right. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX. 
Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.